in the fall of 2011, during my first semester at the local community college, I was sent from the main campus downtown to one of the satellite campuses on the north side of the city. I walked into the wrong side of the building. And as I walked into that building, I was greeted by army uniforms, by rank and structure, and all of the meaning that the army had for me, especially at the time. So then I ended up talking to somebody and I said, hey, what is this place? And they told me that it was the local recruiting battalion for the Indiana Army National Guard. And so, like many, like most, I enlisted in the Army National Guard because I was lost on my way to college. I hadn't really trained my mind to remember things. Not as well as I do now. Uh, I'm a bit forgetful. And so the one weekend a month, the basically 16 hours over a two day period, once a month, meant that it took a lot longer for me to develop the repetition that I needed to build the habits that would lead to success. And I found that as I went on. But in the beginning, especially those first five or six months, uh, I struggled, right? That I had a hard, I kept having to ask the same questions over and over again, which was just like Iraq, which was just like Fort Gordon, which was kind of my life up to that point. And I didn't realize at the time that it was because I hadn't really stayed in one place very long. I, I was always changing units, I was always moving, I was out deploying, I was going to the army, I was doing whatever, right? Most of my life up to that point had been in kind of a gypsy vagabond lifestyle where I never really stayed in one spot for too long. I went to second grade in three different schools in two different states when I was a kid. And if you don't stay in one spot, you can't really build anything, let alone habits, let alone teaching yourself the ability to remember things for a long term, because if you're not going to be there necessarily for the long term, your brain might not be wired to think long term, so you're not going to remember things because you might only encounter something once, and if you only encounter something once or twice or six or eight times, but not 50, why put it in your head? Why remember it? And this wasn't a conscious thought, but I think this might be what was going on. You only really train yourself to remember things that you know you're going to need to know for a long time, for a long term. And I had never been anywhere for the long term. My whole life was short term up to that point. And if you move your whole life, if your whole life is spent on the road, especially as an adult, that's all I did. I, I, I'd spent maybe, maybe 18 months in one spot as an adult then what is a long-term pattern for you is different than what is a long-term pattern for other people. The things that you encounter that will be long-term patterns will not be the same as theirs. Theirs will be, oh, this is the way paperwork's done. 
this is going to be a long-term pattern. Therefore, I need to commit this to memory so I can establish the long-term pattern and the memory in my head. But if you're not going to, if you're not anywhere long-term, then you're not automatically going to commit it to memory. You're not going to subconsciously say to yourself, this is going to be a long-term pattern that you have to remember. So it's going to take you longer. But that wasn't really something I was concerned about back then. I was just, I was so arrogant back then, especially coming off active duty, especially right after coming back from Iraq. So I had a little bit of street cred from that, right? I had enough to have, basically to have a very quiet seat at a grown-up table, right? <laughs> like I, I could hang in conversations with people that had more experience, but by no means was I John Rambo. You know, my experience was a lot closer to Scrubs than Hacksaw Ridge, but that was all right. I had an NCO that saw all the way through my arrogant bullshit and... Uh, she was a staff sergeant, and boy howdy, <laughs> did I remember being late for clinic days and low crawling through dried grass, right? Grass that's so dry, it felt like little needles sticking in your arms, right? And I remember her screaming, get your head down, you're being shot at! <laughs> so she wanted me to rub my face in the dried needly grass. And you do that enough times, and they help you find your sense of humility, we'll say. And I noticed that the division between E4s and E5s was a lot closer to the division of E3s and E4s on active duty. And I remember going to, it was the year that the Super Bowl was in Indianapolis. And I remember going to this E5's Super Bowl party. And then the next day we had to report in and I'm really hungover. But you know, I power through because I'm a champion. At least I fancied myself one at 25. And, and then we had sports PT that day. And then I remember I played basketball. I'm not a sports guy, but I actually played a really good game of basketball so well that in the beginning of the game i remember saying hey guys yeah i'm not that good i'll play but i'm not really a basketball guy and it was almost like the patron saint of basketball whoever they may be went flew down from heaven above and touched my shoulder and said you will play sports good today my son and then flew away and then i did and everyone thought that i was just kidding at the beginning of the game and like, I was just trying to throw off their expectations, but I was secretly good. No, my theory is that maybe you get one good game in your whole life, right? Like there's gonna be one time when everything comes together and you're at your peak physical prime and you just win and you're a champion and never again after that. And then I realized, oh, uh, I, stayed out drinking all night and then I got four hours of sleep and then I did a bunch of cardio and then I worked all day and then I played basketball <laughs> and I remember being in the locker room and the supply sergeant walks in and goes oh hey Lester how's it going and I'm like kind of 
going in and out of consciousness. I'm like, hey, bro, like, um, I think I danced about one too many steps today, and I'm about to pass out, so I need you to hang out for a bit. And then he hung out for a bit, and he got one of the medics, and then I got an IV in the locker room, uh, which was nice, and, you know, kind of got me through the rest of the day and helped me wake up. And they're like, maybe you should just, like, sit at the front desk. <laughs> That's all I did. I just sat at the front desk, and, and as time went on there, as more drills were under my belt, as an annual training was under my belt, I got familiar, I got comfortable, I got good at all of the basic stations and drills and things I was supposed to do there. I remember spending most of my time either taking blood samples or giving immunizations. There were several different clinic stations there, but the two I enjoyed the most were the ones with needles, right? And that was probably my strongest skill as a medic was needles. I could feel someone's vein, know exactly where to hit, and then I was so good at it, I could feel when I punctured the first vein wall. But then you can also kind of feel when there's a little bit of resistance that you punctured the second vein wall and you think, oh, I've gone too far, right? So I need to pull it out. And this isn't gonna like kill the person or anything. It's just, you've blown a vein and you have to try at a different spot. And that was always my strongest skill, was drawing blood, giving IVs, and giving immunizations. And then after about 18 months, I went to the E5 board. On active duty, before you could, you know, like if you're going before the E5 board, you're supposed to stand, you're supposed to like salute the, you know, the Sergeant Major who was the guy in charge of the board. Typically you don't salute NCOs, but like if you're in a board, then it's appropriate to do it then. And then you're supposed to stand at attention and then shout out the the NCO creep. Uh, I had gotten to about 10 minutes before the board and realized, oh, oh, I didn't memorize the NCO creed. Oh, I failed before it started. Oh no. <laughs> and then I got there and they didn't ask me the NCO creed. They just kind of asked me questions and there was a couple I didn't know the answers to, so I said, First Sergeant, I do not know the answer at this time, but I will get the answer back to you or something. And then they asked me the question, which got me through it, right? Got, got me enough points, impressed them enough to squeak by, which I think summarizes a lot of my military career, which was impressing people enough to squeak by, if you really think about it. And he asked me um, what, what organization just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and I said the European Union, because for some reason the Nobel Committee gave them the Peace Prize for going 60 years without a continental-wide uh, bloodbath that engulfed the many nations of the world. So they got a participation trophy for not killing millions of people since the Second World War, right? That's why the EU got the Nobel Peace Prize, which I always thought was kind of stupid. But I digress. I never got the Nobel Peace Prize, so I probably can't talk too much. But after that, I became an E5. I put that I would travel statewide to fill any slot for an E5 that was available. And so I ranked 27 out of 27. 
but I think I was the only one who picked statewide or something, and, or one of the few. I don't know. I didn't really score that high. I just, again, squeaked by. And then that same staff sergeant that had me crawling through the prickly needle grass took me out for my NCO washdown, which is where the NCOs, everyone goes out and gets the new guy good and hammered. <laughs> because we went from bar to bar to bar to bar that night. And I didn't have to pay for a drink. And that, that grumpy staff sergeant made sure I had a good time. And I'm so thankful that I got to partake in that tradition. And I'm so thankful that she took such good care of me. And then I left. I changed station. I left and went to an infantry company in deep southern Indiana. Which was kind of like stepping over the rainbow and going to Oz and joining the Lollipop Guild. In the United States military, there are two very distinct sections. There is the support section, which has multiple units across a wide range of MOSs and job titles. And that's where I'd spent my career up to that point. I had been in signal units. I had been in truck driving units. These were units that were designed to facilitate communications and logistics and pre-deployment medical readiness to ensure that the warfighter, the trigger puller, has everything he needs, right? It's support. And then there's combat arms, which is almost an entirely different military, right? Because support is often closer to an office setting. In the signal unit, we'd go out to the field, but we slept in tent city, right? They were pre-positioned tents. We didn't put up the tents. The tents were there. They were static tents. And we put on our gear once or twice a year and ran around in the woods and played soldier. And we, you know, went to the range once a year and did enough so that if we had to pick up a rifle, we could at least make a good show of things, <laughs> you know, and hopefully hold out before the professionals got there. And then there's combat arms, which is where those professionals live. And I was so unprepared. <laughs> I was, I, I, yeah, it was kind of like starting over one more time. And over the course of those six years, I actually learned how to be a pretty decent medic NCO in the medic platoon, but I had to learn everything the hard way and from the ground up. When I first got there, I remember just kind of being an asshole, which looking back reminds me of how deeply insecure I was about my position there and feeling so out of place and not knowing what I was doing. And so I just way overcompensated. You know, I was just kind of a jerk. And I remember as a medic NCO, there's a couple of things going on there. Because as an NCO, you were in a position of authority and you had to speak with authority. Now, there's a difference between speaking with authority and being an asshole. And you speak with authority to your soldiers. But when you're outside of the medic platoon, unless there's like 
a crisis or something and you have to take charge of the situation, you're Doc. And that's the difference. You kind of have to switch roles and switch hats. And I didn't know that. I was this sort of cartoon sergeant character when I first got there. And I would act like that cartoon character to infantry Joes, right? Infantry soldiers. And then one day, and God bless him, about 18 months at the infantry company I was in, this E6 pulls me off to the side and says, hey bro, you're developing a reputation for being an asshole because word on the street is the new doc is an asshole. And I went, oh no. And he's like, yeah. And once that reputation disseminates, no one's coming to you because your job, the whole reason your job exists is so people can like feel safe and comfortable enough to come to you with their problems, with their most intimate concerns, with suicidal tendencies, or hey, there's a wart on my dick, or my girlfriend left me, or whatever. And if they think you're going to be an asshole to them for no reason to make you feel like you're a big man or whatever, then they ain't coming to you. So why the fuck are you there? And when that happened, when that nice kind man pulled me to the side, I did a hard reset because if there's one thing I've learned is that if, if you're doing something and it's not working, do something else. Now I do operate in pendulum swings. So <laughs> I'm like, oh, this isn't working. What's the opposite? I'll do that. Now I didn't become like a groovy granola guidance counselor, but I dropped 95% of any sort of like cartoon character, sergeant, whatever. And that made a lot of the difference. That made all of the difference in the world. And that was one of the many things I had to learn the hard way. Learn by beating my head against a hot stove. And something I did learn while I was there was what I was really good at as an NCO. I found the guys that didn't belong and that I kind of brought them into my orbit and said, hey, you're a part of my group. Like there's a little subsection of weirdos that don't quite fit in and you're with us now. And it kind of worked. And I was, <laughs> I had to kind of create my own little space there, right? But it worked and, and I was able to do that. And I remember talking to this kid named Dave. And Dave and I, we showed up at the same time and we grew together quite a bit. Right, he was an E4, I was an E5. And much like myself, Dave stepped over the rainbow and joined the Lollipop Guild. And I recognized that and I seemed to click with him. And so I kind of leaned into that and he, I always kind of checked on him and made sure he was okay. And, and it was nice to have someone to talk to sometimes because sometimes people didn't like me there very much. And watching him grow was amazing. I remember when he first got there, he had been through training, but he didn't have any field experience, right? He didn't have any experience in person with patients. So if you don't have any in-person experience, you're not going to be super productive, right? Because you've never done this before. You just read books years before. And that was Dave. And over time with experience, Dave got good at it. I remember being sent out to a rifle range to pull medical coverage with Dave. And I had a pretty relaxed policy whenever I did that, which was about once an hour, 
we'd leave the ambulance, we'd walk around, we'd show our faces, we'd say hi to everybody, then we'd go back and take a nap. And I remember I was napping in the back of the ambulance and Dave wakes me up and he says, hey, Sergeant Lester, can we train from the medic bag? Can we go over things? And I said, oh my God, yes. <laughs> you know, because I mean, napping's great, but also a soldier that had the desire to learn uh, and grow and be a more proficient medic. That was great. That sort of thing instills confidence. And I remember we were teaching the combat life server course, me and Dave, along with the others, but me and him were kind of tag team in a class together. And then he just kind of says, Sergeant Lester, I got this, don't worry. And then he steps in front of the class and then he just starts teaching the class. And I take steps back and I'm like, holy shit, he really knows what he's doing. And not only that, he he took he took over the class for me with all that confidence and authority, right? That I had never seen in Dave. Cause this is probably we'd been working together for like two years at this point. And that confidence he displayed was so important because as a medic, when you're out in the field and you're on your own, you are on your own. And you might have minutes to fix a problem. And so you had to be able to exude confidence, right? And I like to think that since he was such a misfit that maybe me investing in him and kind of make trying to make him maybe feel like he belongs, maybe that kind of gave him the space to feel like he could step up and be confident around me. Because I remember a couple years after that, I'm in a locker room right on Camp Atterbury and I run into the platoon that Dave is tasked out to. And all these infantry guys are walking up and say, hey doc, I got a question. I turn around, but they're not talking to me. They're talking to Dave. And I'm like, oh, they call you doc. Oh, you've earned that title. And I could see the way that the infantry Joes and NCOs were looking at him was with respect and authority, right? Like they looked to him to answer questions. Dave had grown into his own. And seeing all of this was such a pleasure to watch. And the last I heard from Dave was after we had both gotten out. And he asked me to write him a letter of recommendation. And I was so honored. And I was so privileged to see him grow into being the man he is today. Being the father he is today. And Dave, if you're listening to this, the next time you're in town, the first beer is on me. On my best days, I got to save a life. And when I was tasked out to give medical support for a range, I got to have one of those days. This would have been about 2015. And I was in one of the field land ambulances. <laughs> ambulances. And I remember I'm in the front driver's seat posted up near where the range was where the guys were doing maneuvers or whatever the infantry guys did and this guy runs up and i hear medic medic and then i start the vehicle and i just hand him off and the army flas uh have a lot of horsepower behind them uh, you can go up and down and through dishes and stuff and it will 
pull through, right? It's not like, you know, the Ford I got at the house. And I get there and there's two junior medics there. And one of them had the presence of mind to loosen all of this guy's clothing. He unbuttoned his trouser pants. He, you know, untucked his shirt, took off his army jacket, took off his hat. The other one had the presence of mind to dump a bunch of water on him, right? Because this guy was a heat casualty. And heat casualty sounds very dramatic, and it can be. But it just means that you overexerted yourself in a hot place, right? And there's three different categories of heat casualty. And I don't remember exactly what category this guy was, but I know he was passed out and he was nonverbal. And one of the junior medics there started to try to get an IV on him. And so there was this crowd that had formed around us and there's 15, 20 guys and they're all watching. And that was one of the things about being doc was that if it was go time, then you felt like you were on a stage, right? And it was time to perform and you had to mentally shut out the audience and you had to just focus at the task at hand. And so me being the medic NCO in the area, I took charge of the situation and I said, oh, I'm gonna let this kid give it a shot because he needs the experience and he needs to know what it's like in a real world situation to perform. And so he gave it his best try, but with a crowd of 15 or 20 people shouting, please save him doc, oh my God, right? And everyone's watching you and everyone's talking to you. It was not a successful stick. And I think he got a bit of stage fright, I think is what happened, right? Which happened to me, happens to all of us. And so when the kid didn't get the stick, I got in there and it took me about 15 seconds of digging through the passed out soldier's arm before I got the vein. And then we got everything packaged and then we got him in the ambulance. And then it's me and this other E5 in the back of the ambulance and those passed out soldiers there. And so there's not really, there's enough space for the soldier and then about three inches, maybe six above him is another bunk, right? To put in another patient that wasn't there. And so all of a sudden the patient just, he goes, oh my God, what's happening? What's going on? And I grab his shirt and I'm like, hey man, it's cool. You're with the medics. And then he passes out. And I turn to uh, the E5 next to me and I'm like, bro, I don't think he's breathing. It's so we start like sternum rubbing him and that's where like, you know, you, you, you take your knuckles and then you grind them into someone's chest in between their nipples, right? And so that's really painful. And so that's just kind of to get a response out of somebody to see if you can wake them up because there wasn't really enough space to do effective CPR and I could have done an airway too, but honestly, I was so inexperienced with that, didn't even come to my mind. And, and then after say 10 seconds of me rubbing his sternum he goes <gasps> like he just stopped breathing for a second and his whole body reset and i go oh thank god <laughs> oh man so we get to the battalion aid station and then we transfer care to the local civilian ems that took him to johnson county memorial hospital and i thought holy shit <laughs> i felt about 10 feet tall that day so i remember we set up this big training exercise and they had different stations and the final station was you were supposed to go into this ambulance and then people on both sides of the ambulance were going to rock it back and forth back and forth and me as the e5 i was supposed to stay in there and run the training lane in the ambulance 
where the junior medics were supposed to practice doing IVs in kind of an intense situation. And one of the other NCOs says, Lester, you got the stick. You're really good at sticks, so we're going to put you there. And as the soldiers went through the round robin experience and then got to me, they got into the back of the FLA. There's uh, someone laying there to get stuck. And then I'm standing in the hallway in between both sets of racks with the top bunks and the bottom bunks. And then there's a guy to my bottom left that the junior medic's supposed to stick. And so everyone on both sides is rocking it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then it gets to a point where I say, stop. And then the rocking slows down to like 10% of what it was. So there's still some rocking, right? But like, it's not impossible. And so the idea is to build confidence in a chaotic real world sort of like medevac situation where you're just trying to keep people alive as you haul ass out and i remember this kid who i didn't get along with and that was my fault because i could be kind of an asshole back then and i remember he was nervous and he had trouble getting the stick because all the lights were out and he was doing an office headlamp that was attached to his helmet and then i kind of like got real quiet and i said hey arcs it up 45 degrees go a little bit further do you feel that first vein pop go keep going don't go if you feel a second vein pop you've gone too far drop it down to five degrees advance the catheter boom you're in that little bit of blood tells me you did it hook the tube up to the catheter and then you're good turn on the fluid guys get an iv good to go and he looks up at me and says thank you sergeant for helping me out i said it was my pleasure and i grew as an nco that day for a couple reasons but I was able to see where I was, see what my position was, and take all of my insecure bullshit out of the equation. Because a lot of my initial trouble, the first couple years I had there, was because of all my insecure bullshit. And then I realized, oh, I could be such an asset. And I like to think I was. United States Army always seemed to have a culture that was built around a 25-year-old guy who's in good shape, likes to drink booze, likes to chase pretty girls, and for good reason, because that sort of guy is going to charge up a hill. He's going to breach a door. He's going to do aggressive things and kill in the name of his country. So there's a lot of the military that's built around that to sort of encourage that mindset, that lifestyle. And nothing wrong with it. It's necessary in that culture, in that society, in that little segment of the world. And a big part of that was drinking a bunch. And I remember in 2008, when I was stationed at Fort Gordon, we would drink because we were bored, right? I I might have been 22, if that. I was really young still. And I remember on a Saturday morning waking up and saying, oh, it's 9 a.m. I've got two leftover pizzas in my mini fridge in my little barracks room. I've got a 30 rack of Natty Ice Lights. 
I'm not going anywhere for the next two days. I'm just going to sit in my barracks room, eat pizza, and drink beer till Monday morning uh, formation. And some weekends, uh, especially on rear detachment, that's what I did back then. And the National Guard, especially the infantry unit I was in, was very much like that. It was almost a snapshot of the military back in the late 2000s. Because that's when a lot of the leadership of the battalion I was in had deployed last was 2008, 9, 10. And so a lot of the culture was kind of built around that. And not only that, but it was uh, a combat arms unit. So there was a more masculine, more macho, more aggressive culture. And that also includes a lot of drinking. And so I remember coming back from an annual training and we're in formation and the company commander is talking to us and he gave us two options. We could drive somewhere else, right? As long as our squad leaders knew where everybody was, or we could stay at the armory and drink the beer that the command and staff was nice enough to buy for everybody. They had filled up big, huge trash cans full of ice and beer. And I said, oh, I'll pick option number two, please and thank you. <laughs> so I remember passing out at about 2 a.m. And I'm underneath a desk in this office. And about, oh gosh, 6.45 a.m., this kid wakes me up. And he's like, Sergeant Lester, Sergeant Lester, we've got formation in 15 minutes. And my eyes open, and I could feel my eyeballs scrape against my eyelids like a rough sandpaper, almost like a cat was licking my eyeballs. And I'm like, oh my god, I'm, I'm not even a human being right now. But I go to my buddy Adam, and I'm like, hey man, we got formation, we gotta go. And Adam's looking for, like, his shoes, and I've got, like mismatched colored socks but i i put my clothes on i make it to the big gymnasium where we had formation at and i see my platoon sergeant at the time just passed out on the floor <laughs> in one of those patient stretchers right because he grabbed one from the medic cage and laid it out as a bunk to sleep on <laughs> and other people are uh, passed out as well <laughs> I look at my buddy Adam, and I'm like, dude, I don't think we have formation right now. I'm going back to sleep. <laughs> there were several summers that I picked up extra orders where different training exercises needed medics for different reasons. And so I remember this one summer I went out and I had this junior medic assigned to me, right? He's a real smart guy, real capable guy. Had a spider bite on the left side of his hip because the guy that was going to go didn't want to go. And he was friends with the right people and talked them into sending specialist spider bite. And so I was pretty annoyed about that myself and so me and spider bite go out there and spider bite was at the time taking percocet and other intense painkillers because whatever bit him it looked like there was a hole that was necrotizing into his hip and i shined a flashlight in there it was a pretty deep hole in the kid's hip 
And so I had to have four big, strong infantry grunts hold each limb down while I pulled the gauze out of his hip with tweezers, cleaned the wound and repacked it. And then he'd pop some more Percocet. And then I'd say, hey, bud, you're not going to be a medic until this prescription runs out. <laughs> and we were covering for a company of, let's say, 100 people, right? And so already... 50 a piece is a lot. It's doable. A hundred by myself was a lot, a lot, right? It was doable. And when I was out with that group, we were just bored. We were background extras in a much larger training exercise, right? We had to quote unquote pull security so that the others that were actually doing the really cool stuff could do their training. We, we, we were background extras, basically. So we ended up sitting in trucks a lot, ended up reading books a lot, you know, which it's not a bad way to make a paycheck, right? <laughs> it's just, just being a prop, right? That's fine. And on day four or five of being background extras, the grunts started getting bored. And so they started juggling knives back and forth. And I'm looking at this, and I'm just like frozen, like, oh, oh no. <laughs> and then one of the NCOs walks up and starts screaming at the two, like, what are you two doing? What part of this seems like a good idea? Is it the juggling knives part? Because I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. <laughs> and Which is good, because at that point, I was trying to not involve myself in disciplinary issues for non-medic personnel as much as possible, right? Like if I had to step into something, I almost stepped in that one, but one of their E5s beat me to it. So which was good because if you get involved in their disciplinary issues and you end up mixing hats and it gets confusing what your role is. But as the two week period went on, I got to know what it was like to cover down on an entire infantry company all by myself, which was a lot. It was, I had a morning sit call where people, I said, hey, come here at six o'clock in the morning. If you got any issues and then we'll, oh, if it's a big thing, we'll take you somewhere else. If I can handle it, I'll handle it in house. And it was, it was a lot of pressure. It really was covering down on a hundred people by myself. There was a little cafe on the base we were at and it was a little, little teeny tiny training base. And I would just kind of go there by myself and read a book and not talk to anyone. Cause I taught everyone would talk to me, right? Which is not my normal personality go-to. Normally I'm a uh, super chatty Kathy, but that's what being doc was about. That's what being doc was like. Before my time in the infantry company, I had just been a clinic medic, right? Or I had just been a medic with the truck drivers or whatever. I hadn't been an infantry doc. And and that was a great experience working in the clinic. And I, I, I loved it and is really what I was the strongest at. But there was this other aspect of it, right? There was this kind of cool, potentially over-romanticized in my head aspect of it where you were medical support, you were the guy. You were practically a superhero because... You were the person they called when they needed a life saved, when they were in trouble, when they were in danger. They yelled for Doc. And that was your superhero name. P 
people would cry out, Doc, and we would go running towards them. And I had never been that guy before I got to the infantry company. And for my first two, three years in the infantry company, I had to learn how to function within a medic platoon and just figure out how to be support in an infantry situation. Real basic stuff. Like how do you pack for two weeks in the field? Two weeks in the field in a signal unit versus two weeks in the field in a headquarters company infantry battalion unit is night and day. And I learned all of it the hard way. And so after I learned all of it, all of the basic skills that I needed for success there and learned how to function within the unit, right? As a member of the unit, because that's a skill all by itself. I could learn how to be doc. I could learn what that meant. I could learn the great privilege and honor that it really was. And going out to the field, being just a, just one, just being a background extra. It's someone else's training exercise, right? <laughs> Which almost feels like it summarizes a lot of my career. <laughs> that experience that two or three weeks was really my first time that I felt like Doc. I remember being in the company commander's office with the first sergeant and they're asking me medical questions. They're saying, hey, you're treating this guy. How's this guy doing? You're doing this for this guy, right? What do you think about this guy's condition? How do you think he's going to fare? I was in the leadership's office and they were asking my medical advice. And sometimes they listened and sometimes they didn't. I always erred on the side of caution. Just because sometimes if you don't do that, people get hurt. So... I've seen people not err on the side of caution before and others paid the price for it, right? No one died, but people have been hurt before. And so in that company commander's office, I'm like, oh, oh, this is what I've heard of, right? These are the stories that I came up listening to. This is what they told us it would be like in medic school. And I remember sitting there and just really appreciating that moment and saying, oh, this is all of what being doc encompasses right on this second. And it felt really great. Sometimes, even after you think you're all grown up, you could still be quite the knucklehead. And this is one of those times. It was one of the annual trainings where we were out in the field and we were at a change of command ceremony. The infantry company I was in was in formation. As one of the medics, I was walking around, providing medical coverage, kind of looking for people to see what was wrong. If anyone has a heat casualty episode where they're exhausted and they have to go somewhere else. And one of the soldiers in formation fell out due to heat exhaustion and there was an ambulance on standby it wasn't one of ours but it belonged to the local level two medical facility nearby if our battalion aid station was level one this was level two it was closer to an actual a mobile hospital unit with like doctors and lots of nurses on staff and stuff like that 
and not just a bunch of medics out in the woods with tourniquets and IVs. And another big difference between our ambulance and theirs is that the air conditioning in their ambulance actually worked, <laughs> which was nice. And so I took the soldier to the ambulance and then hopped in with them, right? And rode to the level two center. And then I kind of realized, oh, I probably shouldn't have done this. I should have transferred care and then stayed with the group. I shouldn't have gotten in the ambulance with the soldier, right? It was hot. I was tired. I wasn't thinking. And then I call the platoon sergeant at the time and I say, hey man, uh, I fucked up. I came with, right? I just, I fucked up. And he's like, well, you better start walking. And I was like, cool. It's no more than a couple miles. Not a big deal, right? I got this. And so I start walking and then I'm a little turned around and then I tap on a dude's shoulder and I'm like, hey man, I'm looking for the directions to wherever the battalion aid station was at the time. We were out in the sticks at Camp Atterbury. It turns out the guy whose shoulder I tapped on was the Brigade S3 Sergeant Major. And he's like, well, why are you by yourself? Where's your battle body? And I'm like, oh, my platoon sergeant told me to start walking. And he was like, why did your platoon sergeant tell you to say do that? He was in the wrong. Uh, what's his name? How do I get a hold of him? And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> like, sometimes you'd have moments where you know things have gone wrong. You turn left when you should have turned right. And the, the time for turning back is long past. And so I had turned left so many times in my military career when I should have turned right that I kind of knew how the rest of the day was going to play out. And it wasn't going to be a good day for me. So I get inside the brigade headquarters because that's where the sergeant major tells me to go. And then they try to get a hold of my battalion HQ through the radio system. And they're like, hey, what battalion are you? I tell them. What company are you? I tell them. Then they raise the infantry company on the radio. And they get a hold of the guy at the radio desk. And then they say, hey, do you have this random lost medic NCO? Is he one of your guys? And the guy at the battalion uh, radio station says, yeah, he's not one of ours. And everyone from Brigade looks at me and they're like, do you know where you're supposed to go? <laughs> and I'm like, listen, I've been going there for years. I swear to God, that's where I belong to. <laughs> and it turns out that even though I had been going to that unit for years, they had not updated the radio list. So the Sergeant Major was not happy about that. So after that, the Brigade Sergeant Major calls people down at battalion headquarters and then one of the lieutenants a major and the supply sergeant for my company show up in one of the vehicles right like i'm like listen i know i just made everyone look really stupid just because i'm an absent-minded dum-dum and so they're driving me back and then i get to the battalion aid station and then my platoon sergeant had apparently got an earful because i told the sergeant major that he said for me to start walking, therefore, the ball of shit started all the way up at Brigade, rolled all the way down to my platoon sergeant, who then was enthusiastic to hand it to myself, right? And rightfully so. I deserved it. I started the ball rolling. And with all of that in mind, my platoon sergeant informs me 
just how much of a dumb dumb I really am, and that I will be put on dumb dumb status for the foreseeable future. And I'm like, that's fair. So, and and so that's how you annoy everybody, from your platoon sergeant all the way up to brigade headquarters and back down all in one sitting just by climbing into an ambulance. And so a funny postscript to that is that there was this video that was going around the battalion of a woman who was teaching people, it was on YouTube, how to give a blowjob and make it feel like your boyfriend was having sex with a woman at the same time, which was you cut the inside of a grapefruit out. It was a fruit assisted blowjob is what it was. And so, yeah, it went all around the battalion. And then at the end of annual training, right, I was still kind of on dumb dumb status, but they had forgotten about it more or less. And other people had done dumb dumb things. So, you know, we're going through the chow line and the battalion commander is serving everyone chow. And then when I get to battalion commander, he turns to me and says, hey, Lester, uh, you don't happen to have a cantaloupe and a knife on you, do you? Because I saw this video and I need you to do me a favor. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, the BC just told me to suck his dick. <laughs> it was February of 2018 and my knees had gotten to the point where they were starting to go bad. And my platoon sergeant called me and said, hey man, uh, they're wanting to med board you. Do you want to fight it? And I said, oh my God, no. <laughs> and at that point, I'd kind of done everything I wanted to do. I'd probably gone about as high as I was gonna go, right? Because at a certain point you have to be able to conform to your environment and I could only conform to a certain level. And I remember the last drill I did as a medic. It was a flu shot mission. And I was lucky enough to get to be a part of that along with a couple newer medics and a couple of experienced medics. Most of the platoon was out in the field. So it was great. It was, I got to work with people I'd worked with for years, people I respected, and I got to help train the new kids one more time. And I remember there was this new medic and she was a few weeks out of training and her being so new out of training, she's going to be inexperienced, of course, like I was, like we all were. And I remember when she was administering the flu shot, she squeezed the deltoid, she puts the needle in, she hits the plunger, but as the vaccine dose itself was going into the service member's arm, she was pulling the needle out and like half the dose was spilling on the guy's arm. And I'm just watching her and I'm like, hey, first of all, I'm glad you're here and you're doing great. Secondly, uh, watch me because <laughs> i was trying to be encouraging also instructional and so I, I showed her how to do it you grab the deltoid you squeeze it you hit the needle in the arm you administer the dose and when the dose is fully gone it's fully in the service member's deltoid then you pull the needle out and you squeeze the deltoid the entire time as to 
minimize the pain that the needle is causing. And I explained all of that to her. And then I showed her how to do it a few times. And then I high five her and said, all right, man, you're on your own. You got this. And this kid, he was an infantry grunt that was next in line for her. He goes, oh, that's comforting. But <laughs> she did great. She did fantastic. And yeah, we had a line of 25, 50 out the door. And it was great. I knew exactly how to keep that event running smoothly. I wasn't really a higher level guy, but on the ground in situations like that, I knew everything. And I was keeping an eye on how many flu shots were pre-made. And so when that got down to like 10, I would make some more up, right? So like, oh, so we've got 30 on hand because we've got 75 people out the door. So that way the line's always moving, things are always facilitating. And so the junior medics are getting the experience they need just administering the flu shot, right? It's a real assembly line process if you do it correctly. And I wasn't a field guy. I hated camping, but stuff like that, stuff like flu shot missions, I loved because I understood them because it was where I was brought up. And I remember talking to my friend Adam about that. And he's like, yeah, no, because you're a clinic medic. Like, this is your element. And I spent two days helping teach the new medics at administer flu shots. My last drill functioning as a medic, I got to do what I loved. It was a gift. And then we got back to the armory and I was drinking a Red Bull and eating a sandwich and just kind of sitting off to the corner. And I remember seeing my friend Adam who wasn't a staff sergeant by that point, but that was so clearly in his future. He was such a rock star. And, and there are these two corporals that he was mentoring, that he was teaching. And he's just talking to them, teaching them. And they're just following him with a piece of paper and a pen, just writing down. And he's just throwing knowledge and just dumping as much information into their heads as he can. And at that moment, I looked at that and I saw the future of the Indiana Army National Guard. Those two kids being mentored by my buddy Adam as they walked off down the hallway. And I kind of internalized that, oh, I'm not a part of that future anymore. And that was okay. I was going in this whole other direction in my life. And that was okay too, you know. After all of those years, after Iraq, after all of the the pain after the culture of violence and fear and basic training after the rampant drug use at Fort Gordon and just hoping I didn't get beat up by drug dealers on the base after all the ones that didn't make it home and the ones that did but they self-destructed when they got back after years of having this pressure on me where if I failed, people died. After everything, I could move on. And the stories I heard from my elders telling me how there was life after the military, how the army isn't forever, I realized, oh, oh, it's my time. It's my turn to step aside and watch the new generation, the next generation take my place. And they're so amazing. And I got to be a small little part of teaching them. And I get to go throughout my life knowing that not only did I save lives, but I got to spend 
13 years teaching others how to do the same and then teaching them how to replace me. Oh, what a gift. What a gift that was. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And I'm so proud to have been Doc.